Today, we're kicking off a brand new series titled Beyond Reasonable Doubt. And over the next three weekends, uh, I'm going to be tackling a topic that I think is really important for uh, today. Uh, We're going to be talking about the the wrestle with doubt, the wrestle with uh, wondering and believing if Jesus really is who he says he is and if Christianity really is a worldview and a way worth following. And I think this is an important conversation for a variety of reasons. Uh, Number one, uh, you might be a person in the room who... Uh, is struggling to believe. Uh, the life has happened, and the more you experience life as it is, the harder it is to reconcile the reality of the world uh, with this vision that you were given of who God is. Uh, for others of us, this is something that we may not be working through personally, but we know somebody who is. Uh, if I were to ask you this question, I think all of us would probably have an answer. Uh, who is somebody that is maybe struggling to believe or to follow Jesus? I think all of us would say, yeah, I probably have a person that I know that's in that place. It could be you in the room today. It could be you online, uh, or it could be somebody that you know. And if you're a parent uh, or a grandparent, I would say the next three weeks are especially important for you to be here because uh, research has shown that Pine Foundation just commissioned a huge study, and they found this, that over the next 30 years, they expect that one million children that are currently in kids' ministries across our country are going to walk away from following Jesus. That currently, even right now, uh, for every one person that comes to faith in Jesus, four people deconvert. They walk away from the faith of their childhood. So we're going to tackle that over the next couple of weeks. And if you're a person who's struggling to believe, uh, the next couple of weeks, I hope, will give you hope uh, that there is a way to, to wrestle with these questions in a way that might leave you with a faith that's even stronger and more authentic and more real than the one that you have now. And for those of us that are inevitably going to walk with our kids or our grandkids or our friends or our colleagues through this process of trying to understand what it is to follow God when the world doesn't seem to reconcile with the vision that we had growing up, that we'll have the tools we need to be able to do that even better. Um, So with that in mind, I want to ask you this question as we kick off our time today, because I think it really does shape the conversation. And I need to be clear Over the next three weeks, I'm really giving like one sermon uh, chopped up into three parts because I only have 30 minutes, okay? And so uh, we're not going to cover everything today or be able to get through every single question you have, but keep on coming back because I think we're going to see that God actually has something good for us in the midst of our doubt and our our wondering. So here's a question I want to ask you today. It's this, uh, when did you stop believing in fairy tales? When did you stop believing in fairy tales. Uh, At our home uh, over the last couple of months, uh, my youngest has been going through what I would call like an existential crisis. Um, And it started a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago, our whole family is around the dining room table. Uh, We have made a commitment as parents that if our kids ask us a question, we are going to give them the truth because we want to be honest parents and we want our kids to know that they can trust mom and dad. And so my youngest at the dining room table asks me the question that no parent wants wants to be asked, if you get what I'm saying, around fairy tales. And he asks me, and I tell him as the the room gets quiet and everybody looks at dad, I give him the answer that sends his world careening and crashing and crumbling down all around him. Now, this was a painful moment for him, a painful moment for his mother, but an incredible moment for me because I am tired of people taking credit for my hard work and sacrifice, all right? 
And so uh, this had like set my son like in a spiral though. We just got Disney tickets and we're at Disney and every show we go to, he leans over to me and he's like, dad, that's not real. You know, we're at the Indiana Jones show and like, you know, fire explodes and you know, it's, you know, all these loud noises. And he's like, dad, they're just pretending. I mean, I have the most cynical, skeptical son you could ever imagine having at four. Uh, he asked me this question um, after all of it. He was like, dad, even if I know that it's not true, can I still believe? And I, I told him no. no I, I, um, I told him, hey, buddy, you can, you can continue to pretend because you're four. I think that question, though, can I still believe, if we're honest, is the question that many of us are wrestling with. I know that, that the worldview that I grew up with, it just doesn't make sense, but I don't know what else I would go to, so can I still believe? Uh, John Marriott is a PhD, and his focus and research is on deconversion. He's looked at, over the last number of years, why are so many people walking away from faith? And he has this great quote in one of his books, uh, Recipe for Disaster, where he says this, something similar underwrites a significant percentage of deconversions, people that used to believe and no longer do. So the biblical narrative that once easily fit within their childlike understanding of reality began to get squeezed out as they matured. The stories in the Bible about miracles and witches and giants and demons began to feel as out of place as, insert your favorite fairy tale character, parents, you're so welcome that I'm not ruining your experience for your kids. This is the experience, not just of those who de deconvert, but all educated, reflective Christians today. I suspect that even for those that do remain Christians, the cognitive dissonance never really goes away. It has just been reduced to a level that allows them to continue to believe. For deconverts, however, the cognitive dissonance is not sufficiently assuaged by apologetics. It grows despite their efforts and reaches a tipping point. As in the case with, insert your favorite fairy tale character here, the only way to resolve the tension is to admit that they know is true. God, God must not exist. And this is happening over and over and over again in our culture. Now, now I know this, and I'm very encouraged that, uh, that that's not happening to everyone. Um, today, you might find yourself in one of three categories or be able to think about a person you know and place them in one of these categories. I would say for some of us, man, we are devoted. When we think about Jesus, we're all in. Uh, we have gone the long road. We have wrestled through our questions, and we know that we know that we know that Jesus is who he says he is, that the resurrection is real, and that God can be trusted. Reminds me of a quote by uh, the famous writer Leonard Ravenhill. He said this that a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And for many of us, the arguments against our faith, they just don't hold weight and water in comparison to the experiences we've had of God moving in our life, God showing up in a powerful way. And you might say today, I am all in. I have seen the power of God's uh, forgiveness, I've seen the power of God's transformation. I'm not who I once was, and I know it's because of him. But those other categories, those that are deconverted, those that say, I'm out. Uh, I've asked my questions. I've did my research. And I just can no longer pretend to believe this thing I don't believe anymore. And for some of you, you might be in the room right now, but you're here because it matters to your spouse or because your kids, they need some kind of spiritual foundation, right? And so, so for the sake of the family or for the sake of your kids, you, you keep on just keeping on even though you don't really believe. And then there's this whole other category where about 44% of Americans fall and even more millennials and Gen Z fall, uh, those that are deconstruction, deconstructing. Deconstruction is, is this. I'm, 
I'm evaluating what I believe. Like I was given this house uh, that I lived in as a kid called spirituality, and, and I, I realized I can no longer live in that house, so I'm kind of taking it apart brick by brick, piece by piece, and I might rebuild some kind of faith or spirituality at some point, but don't ask me what I believe because I don't know what I believe, but what I know that I know that I know is I don't believe what I used to believe or what people told me I should believe. And about half of our country is in a place of deconstruction right now. Do you know of anybody like this? People that are interrogating or struggling to believe the thing that they once believed? Parents? Grandparents? Is this the story of your kids or your kids' friends or maybe even you? You see, at the heart of deconstruction is the reality of doubt. And we as Christians haven't always gotten doubt right. Uh, We, depending on your tradition, have been taught that doubt is bad. But I need you to hear me. Doubt doesn't have to be bad. In fact, doubt can be an opportunity. Doubt can be an opportunity to let go of the things that you don't really need in faith and double down on the things that really matter more. It's actually a step towards a more authentic, real kind of faith that is your faith, not your family's faith, not your parents' faith, not your tradition's perspective, but yours. And so today, as we Except in a part one of a really what is a three-part sermon, as we think about the fairy tales that we no longer believe, here's the question that I want to put in front of you. What if the God that we've got in mind isn't the God that Jesus had in mind? What if the God that we have in mind isn't the God that Jesus had in mind? Maybe the, the, the God that you're walking away from or the God that you walked away from, you should walk away from because that's not God. Maybe the God that you inherited or believed to be true uh, isn't God. And, and as you bring that God into the reality of life, you said, this doesn't make sense. I can no longer pretend I need to walk away from it. Or somebody you know who says they're walking away from Christianity really isn't walking away from Jesus They're just walking away from a fairy tale version of Jesus that is good for them to walk away from. Maybe there are some fairy tale gods worth walking away from. Because the the fairy tale gods that we've inherited, they don't always help us understand how to deal with trauma and suffering. The fairy tale gods that we've grown up with don't always help us understand our desires and our longings and our humanity. The fairy tale gods that we grow up with, they, they don't always help us make sense of the world as it is. But what if those versions of God, while well intended in their delivery to us and internalization in our souls, are gods worth walking away from? Because at the same time we were introduced to fairy tale characters that we no longer believe in, let's be honest, most of us were introduced to a version of faith as well. And while we matured and grew out of believing in some of those fairy tales, Some of us, some of us feel like we're betraying God because we're walking away from a fairy tale version of him that wasn't him in the first place. So today, I want to talk about five fairy tale gods, uh, gods that are not real, that maybe we've inherited. Uh, And today, you might be offended by some of what I share. I may not even share the kind of God that you walked away from. But as I have done my research, my doctorate is actually in this work, looking at Generation Z and their spirituality, time and time again, I've seen five clear categories of the reasons why people are walking away from God and the gods that they're walking away from that I think you should walk away from too, because they're not God. Here's the first one. You can write it down. 
Secret service God. We're going to look at the fairy tale, the reality, the emotion. Secret service God. Here's secret service God. Here's the fairy tale. God will never let you or the people you love experience pain. Anybody heard about that kind of God? Uh, I remember experiencing this very clearly a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I had a tumor in the side of my face. It was wrapped around my facial nerve. Needed about a six and a half hour surgery to remove it. Uh, And they didn't know if it was cancerous or if it was benign until about four months after this whole process. And so we shared this with people wondering, hey, would you pray for us? Would you kind of help us through this process? It was a pretty, you know, decentering time, unsettling time in our family. And one of the most frustrating things that I would hear people say to me is they would say, Colin, Colin, I just declare that this is not cancer because you are a great husband, you're leading a great ministry, you've got young kids, you're doing so much for God, there's no way God would ever let this be cancer. They place their hands on me and shake me like on my shoulders and be like, don't you worry. And I wanted to put my hands on them in a non-spiritual sense as well. Because at the same time, that I was waiting on my diagnosis, a man who I read and knew about named Nabil Qureshi, who was doing incredible work for God, more work than I could ever do, was diagnosed with stomach cancer, had two beautiful kids, and within nine months passed away. Because here's the reality. Pain is inevitable. It's unfair and unevenly applied. But the emotion we feel if we believe in that God is betrayal. God, God, I thought that the safest place I could be was in your will, right? God, God, I thought that you were going to take care of me. God, I've been doing all of these things right, and now when I need you to come through on this medical diagnosis, you won't? Now when I'm asking you to, to allow us to have a baby so we don't have to go through these miscarriages, you won't? God, I thought that, I thought that if I just followed you, you were going to take care of me. And the question I would ask is, who told you that? Who told you that that's who God was? Because I promise you, it wasn't Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in John 16, verse 33. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, would you read this sentence with me? In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Jesus told us that life would be hard and painful and unfair And pain would be unevenly applied. Peter, who followed Jesus, writing to the early church, uh, made it really clear that that they should expect hard things to happen in life as well. That that following Jesus doesn't place you in this little plastic bubble that keeps all the bad things out so only the good things come in. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Do you see what he's saying here? Don't don't be surprised when when bad things are happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you in partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. In other words, listen, hard things are going to happen. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to get the answer you want all the time or that he's going to protect you from hard things. And yet it is so easy to believe in that God until that God becomes a fairy tale. And listen, if that's the God that you walked away from, if that's the God that your friends have walked away from, good, because that God's a fairy tale God and that God does not exist. Here's the second God. 
The second one I like to call chancleta God. All right, now, so from some of my Latinos and Latinas, you'll get that. For my friends who are like, what's a chancleta? The other way to describe it is bring the belt God. All right, bring the belt God. Uh, a chancleta is like a, um, it's like a leather um, sandal or a hard plastic sandal that like abuelas and like grandparents and aunties and pretty much anybody in your family, if you're doing the wrong thing, they can take it off and they can smack you. Like that, anybody been whooped by a chancleta? I just want to raise your hand and be honest with it. Yeah, okay, right. We all know, right? Yeah. For some of you, it was bring the belt or bring the switch God. All right. You can, you can, you culturally appropriate it how you want, right? Um, I, I don't know about you, but like, that, the interesting thing about the chancleta is like sometimes you get brought over to get the, you receive the discipline and correction of your abuelo, abuela, right? But oftentimes they were too lazy, so they would just throw it at you. Anybody have that happen to you? <laughs> Here's the fairy tale God here, chancleta God, that God is looking for reasons to punish you. Some of us, we grew up with this kind of culture, that God is like a spiritual supervisor waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can give you a pink slip. That God is trying to get you in trouble. That God is waiting for you to make mistakes so that he can just descend on you with his anger. And for many of us, this wasn't necessarily what we heard in church. It's just what we experienced from our parents Monday through Saturday when we weren't in church. Our parents were teaching us that God was a God to be feared. But here's the reality. Authentic relationships cannot grow in cultures of fear and shame. And God's longing to be in a good relationship with you is diametrically opposed to the idea that that can happen in a culture of fear. It can't. But for many of us, for many of us, we, we started breaking the rules, or we broke a rule we thought we could never break, and then we did. And we were so afraid of what God was going to do that we just ran away from God. I know of people that say crazy things like, the reason why we're having a miscarriage right now is because I... Well, I had an abortion a couple of years ago, and God's just, God's just getting back at me. And when you and I interact with our creator from a perspective of fear, worried that the chancleta's going to come our way, kind of with a little hitch in us every time we're, you know, making a mistake, that will never develop the kind of relationship that God wants for us. And for so many of us, we're running away. Now, now think about how diametrically opposed that is, that vision of God is, to what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he says this, therefore... There is now, look at these two words, no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so... He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, every single ounce of my guilt, shame, regret, pain, stupidity was placed on the back of Jesus. And when he said it is finished, he meant it. When he said, Father, forgive him, he meant it. God never looks at me with eyes of anger, anger with a chancleta really ready to throw it at me. He looks at me with love and care and compassion. So if the God you ran away from is a God that you're afraid of, if the God that you ran away from is a God who's just ready to get you in trouble and ready to punish you, good. You should run away from that God. You shouldn't walk. You should run away from that God because that God is not real. That God is a fairy tale and that God does not exist. Now, 
The next one is the one where I'll probably get in the most trouble today. So I'm going to do my best to be nuanced with it, but give your boy some grace, okay? The next God I'm going to talk about is a God that I've especially seen impact people that are millennials and Gen X. There's an era um, in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, where, um, yeah, we, we really put a focus and an emphasis on certain sins over other sins. And so I call this God, the third one, you can write it down, True Love Waits God. Anybody familiar with the True Love Waits movement? Anybody? Yeah? True Love Waits God. If you're unfamiliar with it, uh, it was this movement that was happening in the 90s and the early 2000s that basically told Christian teenagers this. It was happening in Catholic churches, happening in um, uh, Protestant churches, that if you kept yourself pure, God would give you blessing. That if you kept yourself pure, God would give you a great marriage. He would give you incredible connectedness and intimacy. And everything that you were longing for as a preteen or as a teenager, as your hormones ranged in your body, God would give you in a beautiful picture of marriage. If you keep your purity, God would promise you marriage. Now, here was the problem with that. About 2.5 million uh, preteens signed these pledges that said that they were going to keep themselves pure. And then a research study came out showing that of the 2.5 million that signed these, the, the, the research study showed that less than 20% actually kept that promise. And how many of us know that even on a survey, people lie, right? So what does that do? What does that do to a whole generation that, that said, I'm going to keep myself pure, and then they ended up not being able to do that? Well, here's the reality. I need you to hear this. Purity is not something you keep. Purity is something that Jesus alone can give. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? And so, well-intended but caused a ton of pain. So, so I do marriage counseling sessions where people are saying, listen, I kept myself pure. Why is my marriage a mess right now? God must be a liar. I, I, I did everything that I was supposed to do. Why, why is my marriage falling apart? I did everything I was supposed to do. Why am I not yet married? Because you were sold a bill of goods that was a lie. God never promises that if you do the right thing, he's going to owe you something in return. And yet, when youth pastors with frosted tips looking like Justin Timberlake talk about their smoking hot wife in the front row and tell a bunch of kids, if you just do it this way, you're going to have everything you could ever want. When they share those things, we believed them. And a generation later, the emotion that countless people I know walking away from Jesus feel is shame. Shame. Shame because they couldn't keep their promise, and now they feel like the result of that is the consequences of what they're experiencing in their adulthood. Shame because of what happened to them that makes them feel like they're not worthy of love and affection and care later on in life. Shame because they connected in some way their ability to keep it, an aspect of their life, quote-unquote, pure. And when they couldn't, that meant God no longer cared for them, loved them, or would bless them. And the result of that has been devastation. Now, compare that to what Jesus teaches in John chapter 8. When we find in verse 3 that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, now it's important to paint the scene here. A woman caught in adultery means that she was in the act of doing what was inappropriate. And they grabbed her out of the act and paraded her in front of a bunch of men. This is the epitome of shame. 
She does not have time to put uh, proper clothing on. She does not have time to put herself together. She was caught in the act. They grab her and drag her out in front of all of these men to witness and throw her in the ground. They say they make her stand up before the group and say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman, ashamed, standing there. And Jesus straight up, straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see the difference? See, see God has a sexual ethic. God has a standard of what is best. But the means by which God invites us into that standard is not through a reward system. If you do this, you'll get that. If you just do A plus B, you'll always get C. No, the way that God invites us into the better way of living is through kindness and compassion looking at us in the midst of our most shameful moments, of our greatest guilt, of our greatest regret, and saying, neither do I condemn you. Now come, follow me. So if, if the reason why your spirituality is broken is because of some messed up sexual ethic you were given at some point in your life, or some messed up understanding of if you just do this, God is going to give you that, or that you thought in some ways it was your job to keep your purity, and if you couldn't keep your purity, God would love you less or not bless you as much. I want you to know that is a lie from the pit of hell because you cannot maintain or keep purity. That is something God declares and gives you once and for all through Jesus. He calls you pure. He calls you good. He calls you righteous. He calls you whole. Neither do I condemn you. Now come and follow me. The fourth one is Amazon Prime God. You know? Anybody, anybody like get upset at Amazon when they say that they won't deliver it within 48 hours? Anybody, anybody upset? I get upset. It's amazing how entitled we've become as a generation, right? I'm like, if I can't get it by the end of today, Amazon, you are not doing your job. And don't get me started if they say they're out of stock or this is a supply chain shortage. I'm like, Amazon, you own the world. There should be no supply chain shortage, right? Amazon Prime God, this is a fairy tale. If you ask for it, God will give it to you. If you ask for it, God will give it to you. I can't tell you how many people I know that have walked away from a version of God because God didn't give them what they thought God was supposed to give them. God, I thought that if I gave, you would bless me. I thought that if I served, you would bless me. I thought if I volunteered in kids' ministry, you would give me kids. God, I thought that if I just kept on coming to the young adult environment and kept on serving as a mentor in student ministry, you would give me a spouse. But here's the reality, is that God never promised he would give us what we want. Listen to me. God never promised he would give you what you want if you were obedient to him. Pastors who are lazy promised you that. Because it's easier as a pastor 
to get people to do things, if you say that there is a reward, then it is to preach to you the full picture of the gospel, which is Jesus saying, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And be obedient, not because you're going to get good things as a result. Be obedient because God loves you, and that should be enough for you to want to be obedient to him. See, the emotion that we feel when that God falls apart is disappointment. God, God, I thought that you promised. God, God, you you promised that if I, and, and God said, I never promised you that. Lazy pastors did. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 41 to 44. It says this, that he withdrew, Jesus, about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Now pause. What is going on here? Jesus, the perfect person, the best person in the world, who always obeyed God, is about to ask God to do something for him. What is it? Remove the cup of suffering that would come with the cross. Jesus, who has never disobeyed God, Jesus, who has always done the right thing, in his moment of great weakness and fear, before he's going to go to the cross, prays this in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now we know this. God didn't take that cup away from Jesus, did he? So if the best possible person asking God to take away the worst possible thing doesn't get the answer that he wants, what makes us think that God is going to owe that to us? God never said that that was the case. No, the invitation to follow Jesus isn't to follow Jesus so that you'll get what you want. The invitation to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus because he's what you need. And that with him, you'll experience his presence and his kindness, even when you don't get what you want. Now, the last one is the one that I would say, as I've done my research, is the primary reason why, uh, especially Gen Z, is walking away um, from spirituality and faith. And so if you're a parent or a grandparent, especially pay attention to this one. Because what, why, while it may not be your current experience, it may become your experience in the future. Uh, this is a newer one, I would say, that's a, a bit more recent in terms of the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but this one has been the primary uh, reason, as I talk with people, as to why they're walking away from faith. It's this. You can write it down. In it to win it, God. In it to win it, God. Here's the fairy tale. Um, the fairy tale is the world is getting worse. They, those people out there, are the reason why. And we, the Christians, we, the church, must win at all cost. And so we will value um, power uh, over character, influence over integrity. We will take on a win at all costs kind of mentality. But the reality is that the end just doesn't justify the means. I can't tell you how many times I hear young people give me some version of this kind of statement. And the emotion that they feel is confusion. Uh, because when they look at the way that people are acting around God, they say, Man, if God is a sovereign God who we can fully trust, why are we trying so hard to manipulate things behind the scenes to get what we want? I've heard a version of this quote over and over and over again. My parents have told me my entire life, that the most important thing in the world is character and integrity. But I'm realizing that they only meant that until there was something to lose. Jesus, 
thinking about power and influence. And Matthew chapter 20 says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their power, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Jesus would say this, not so with you. Like the way that people try to use power to get what they want, the way that people use influence to try to have things come to their way or manipulate outcomes to their ends, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first your servant must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So part of the reason why we're in this crisis that we're in right now is because people are walking away from versions of God that I would say are worth walking away from. Like if you're walking away from true love waits God, good, because that God is a fairy tale God. If you've been walking away from in it to win it God, good, because that God is a fairy tale God. If you've been walking away from Amazon Prime God, good, because that God is worth walking away from because it's a fairy tale God. But there is a real God. There is a creator and a sustainer of the universe. There is a God who loves you and knows you. And that God, that God is worth following. Interestingly enough, um, as my son has been reflecting on the crisis of realizing what is real and what is true and what isn't, is that he has asked more questions, not less. And as a parent, I'm really, really happy that he has. Because the more questions he asks, the more real life becomes, and the more he gets the skills and the tools and the abilities to be able to discern what is true and what is real on his own when his dad isn't there to help guide him. And for too long and too often, we haven't learned how to ask questions and wrestle with the results and still know that God can hold on to us in the process. So next week, in part two, we're gonna answer this question. How to deconstruct our faith and walk with those who are. So in between now and then, I want to leave you with three questions, and I want you to write them down. Here's a question I'd love for you to have at your dining room table or over lunch or perhaps in your small group. Question number one, what fairy tale God have you believed in? Here's the second question. What fairy tale God are you walking away from? And thirdly, how could deconstruction, honestly, wrestling with our doubts as opposed to running from them or pretending that they're not there. How could deconstruction actually be a gift if it leads to reconstructing something better, a more authentic, true, real, honest faith? Because what if the reason that you're walking away from a fairy tale God is because God is inviting you to walk toward the real him, the real one, who invites you to follow and to trust. With that in mind, would you stand? Um, I could imagine that in a room like this and online, um, for those of us that have maybe been Jesus followers for a long time, um, we have either uh, experienced the version of the fairy tale gods that I was talking about today, or even continued or supported a version of a fairy tale God that today we're looking at thinking, oh my gosh, maybe what I thought was a great idea at the moment wasn't 
that maybe what was well intended was actually incomplete. So I want to invite us today to pray with that in mind. So would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to ask you two questions today. The first one is this. If you would say, man, I, I'm feeling kind of, kind of guilty or I'm feeling some level of ownership or responsibility that, that maybe I have been perpetuating a version of God in my home or in my circles that maybe is a fairy tale God. I want you to hear today that there is now no condemnation for any of us and that God loves our friends and our kids and our family more than we do. That he's not mad at you and that because that's true, you get to receive grace today. So if you would say, I think I might be a part of perpetuating fairy tale gods, I want to invite you to open your hand today to receive God's grace and saying, it is seen and I love you. Grace is sufficient. And then for those of us that, that maybe are deconstructing or doubting, or maybe know somebody who is, I want to encourage you now to know like that God's not afraid of that. And that in your doubting, there might be a deeper, stronger faith that waits on the other side. So be faithful to come back and trust God in the process. Father, I pray that for those of us that are walking with you, devoted, those of us that have deconverted and are still find ourselves in church, those of us that are deconstructing, that you would remind us that you are big enough for all of our questions, you are big enough for all of our problems, and you are close enough that you want to help us walk through them. So give us the strength we need and the courage we need to pursue you in this season, and that we might be able to follow you beyond reasonable doubt. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.